Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 109, Bon Appetit, on the invention of the field of molecular gastronomy. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. To get away from last episode's hardcore science, I thought this would be a good time for a bit of levity, or perhaps leavening. This episode's topic is the history of molecular gastronomy, which combines chemistry and cuisine. The origin of this field lies with two scientists, Hungarian physicist Nicolas Curti and French physical chemist Hervé Tisse. Curti's specialty was cryogenics, which we spoke of in a previous episode, but his hobby was cooking, and he was long known for public physics demonstrations a la Faraday, which incorporated food. For example, he held a lecture at the Royal Institution in 1969 with the title The Physicist in the Kitchen. During this talk, he showed off the new invention of the microwave oven and made a reverse-baked Alaska, what you might call a frozen Florida. A baked Alaska is a frozen mixture of ice cream plus cake covered with meringue which is then baked briefly so that the frozen interior remains, but the exterior meringue is caramelized in what chemists call the Maillard reaction. So the reverse, what Curti did, was to keep a frozen exterior, but microwave the interior to be hot. He showed how to make meringue in a vacuum, and cooked sausages electrically by connecting each end of the worst to poles of a car battery. He also commented during his lecture that, quote, I think it is a sad reflection on our civilization that while we can and do measure the temperature in the atmosphere of Venus, we do not know what goes on inside our souffles, unquote. Tis, meanwhile, began to collect old-fashioned kitchen hints and tricks of the trade after he failed spectacularly to make a decent souffle, and tested them to see if they were true. His collection racked up 25,000 different cooking hints, and ultimately he received his Ph.D. in the Physical Chemistry of Materials in 1995. His thesis was entitled La Gastronomie Moléculaire et Physique, Molecular and Physical Gastronomy. Curti and Thys joined forces in 1988 at the Parisian Institut National de la Recherche Agronomique and invented a field which they called molecular and physical gastronomy, whose definition, like some of established ideas in chemistry itself, is admittedly a bit floppy. Whatever its exact nature, it's different from nutrition and food science, for these two fields talk of chemical composition of foods, whereas molecular gastronomy 
deals more with the chemical properties food has, and inventing new foods based on those chemical properties. Research groups popped up around Europe and the United States around that time. The field really examines how to deal with edible colloids, that is, small particles of food suspended in another phase. If you have more than two phases of edible matter, then it's a complex disperse system. A well-known example is ice cream, which has solid particles, the milk, proteins, and fats suspended in water and air. Another is aioli sauce, which is an emulsion of olive oil, aqueous lemon juice, and bits of garlic. Bernays sauce has three phases: oil, a hydrophobic liquid, solid tiny bits of egg yolk, and both are mixed into water. In fact, foods generally are characterized as soft matter, which is a subdivision of condensed matter, that is, solids or liquids. The soft here refers to matter that is easily deformable, including liquids, gels, foams, liquid crystals, meat, granular materials, colloids, and such. The goal was to use established chemical techniques and equipment to enhance food. So you could use filtration to make a liquid transparent. Use a vacuum extractor to create an extract. Make foams via siphoning, and even ultrasonic sound waves to break up fat globules into an emulsion. Certain gelling agents, such as carrageenan. Agar and sodium alginate were placed front and center. An appliance called an anti-griddle chills the external surface of food to minus thirty-four degrees Celsius instead of baking it. Even the use of cryogenic materials like liquid nitrogen was promoted for quick freezing. One goal also was to improve heating efficiency. Stoves. Or hobs, if you are British, burning natural gas can lose up to eighty percent of the heat they generate before it reaches the pots and pans. Four years after the invention of the term, Curti and Tis held workshops in 1992 at the Ettore Majorana Center for Scientific Culture in Erice, Italy, in Erice, Italy, called. International workshop on molecular and physical gastronomy, in which scientists and chefs met, and this became the inflection point of the field where things took off. The workshops were repeated every two years. Overall, by 1995, Tis, in his dissertation, decided that molecular gastronomy had five goals. Quote. One to collect and investigate old wives' tales about cooking, two to model and scrutinize existing recipes, three to introduce new tools, products, and methods to cooking, four to invent new dishes using knowledge from the previous three aims, five to use the appeal of food to promote science. Unquote. So you can see that there was science involved, engineering involved, culinary arts involved, and a bit of scientific public relations and communication. 
that last aim, communication of science to the public, I may discuss in a future episode. Through the 1990s, a gradual split between the cooking part and the science part became important, so now there are subfields often called molecular cooking, or cookery if you speak British English, for the culinary results, and molecular gastronomy for chemical transformations themselves. Curti died in 1998, and then Thies renamed the field molecular gastronomy, dropping the physical part. I myself first became aware of a trend toward molecular gastronomy in 1991, when I attended an American Vacuum Society conference in Seattle, Washington, during my graduate school stint. While in the conference, I stopped at the Royal Society booth and perused their books on sale and found a book called But the Crackling is Superb, originally published several years before, in 1988, the year of founding of molecular gastronomy, and reprinted the following year. The editors of this book were none other than Nicholas Curti and his wife Gianna. Among the gems of the book are a three-way graph of flour versus egg versus fat content of various baked goods, a scientific description of pancake batter, and an essay called Cybernetics and Roux Sauce, and a discussion of what constitutes cooking, including cooking over eons long to make North Sea oil, not to mention a variety of recipes. Curti himself contributed an essay on the use of the hypodermic syringe in the kitchen. I had to buy the book, which I have to this day. Chefs practicing molecular gastronomy took the field to the public in the 1990s and 2000s. Wiley Dufresne in New York City created noodles made with protein flour instead of grain flour and deep-fried mayonnaise. Chicago chef Homaru Kantu invented edible paper and ink. With the gelling agents I mentioned, new dishes were spherified in that the gel creates an edible skin around the food and edible foams were served. You might spherify, say, a soup, so that it appears as a platter of separate globules you can pick up instead of an entire bowl of liquid. In detail, you mix sodium alginate with a savory base and put it into an aqueous solution of calcium chloride to gel the material into so-called pearls, which are something like edible beads. The English chef Heston Blumenthal has served scrambled bacon and egg ice cream. Adria serves warm gelatin. Gelatin normally works best when chilled, like the commercial product Jell-O. But if you add extra agar to, say, beef gelatin, the result remains in jellied form when at room temperature. Adria's culinary foams include sauces pumped full of the dental anesthetic nitrous oxide gas. 
Other chefs sometimes use the emulsifier lecithin to generate foams. For the hot ice cream, you add methyl cellulose, which is a gel that is thermoreversible. That is, it's a liquid when cool and gelled when warm. Chicago chef Grant Ashatz flash freezes a concoction of a central section of roasted sesame oil surrounded by a frozen disk of mango puree. There is the use of transglutaminase, an enzyme that links together parts of proteins. Specifically, the enzyme is a catalyst that helps form a bond between an amine group, NH2, and an acyl group, a carbon double-bonded to oxygen, with an organic group also hanging off the CO group. Essentially, the enzyme acts as a meat glue. Here you can remove the fat from a steak, leaving mostly protein. Then add the enzyme, which cross-links parts of proteins to stick the protein molecules together, making the aforementioned protein noodles. You can also make checkerboard patterns of, say, salmon and tuna, or chicken and beef, using the enzyme. There are some dishes named for famous scientists. One is the Gibbs, which is vanilla pods in egg white plus sugar. Then you add olive oil and microwave the whole thing. This is named for American Josiah Willard Gibbs, whom we've discussed. Another is the Vauquelin, which is sugared cranberry or orange juice added to eggs when you whip them. This raises the thickness or viscosity and stabilizes the resultant foam. Finally, you microwave the concoction. This is named for one of Lavoisier's mentors, Nicolas Vauquelin. A third is the Baume, in which you coagulate chemically the egg's proteins by letting it marinate for a month in alcohol. This is named after French chemist Antoine Baume, another contemporary of Lavoisier. More recent work on molecular gastronomy researches details of texture impressions, taste impressions, smell impressions, how temperature affects our impressions of food, and how these feelings all merge together while eating. There is also research on how known foods change during refrigerated storage, how feed for cattle affects meat and dairy flavor, and how changes in growing herbs affects their flavors. Other gastronomic wonders include foam curry, using agar to allow you to siphon out sauce onto your dish. Or you can use the agar to make spaghetti, to congeal arugula, rocket for you British, into pasta-shaped strands. Or you can use potato starch and lecithin emulsifier to make sacks of transparent ravioli. Or use maltodextrin, a polysaccharide, that is, sugar molecules linked into a polymer, to make a hazelnut-powdered dessert topping that melts in your mouth. By the mid-1990s, Thies developed a trend for note-by-note cooking, using only pure ingredients rather than food ingredients. Thus, instead of adding butter or rosemary or orange zest, you might use only water, glucose, or ethanol. 
A blog by the unnamed gastrochemist discusses interesting new foods like powdered olive oil made with maltodextrin. The blogger notes that spinach caused problems in making spherified ravioli with sodium alginate because spinach has a high alkaline pH. So he added edamame, which is much less alkaline, to lower the pH enough for gelling. Another recipe was the spherification of melon into a caviar-like material for a tapas. I also note the proliferation of bubble tea, which began in the 1980s in Taiwan, but now has many retail sellers across North America. The tea drink contains alginate spheres holding juices, syrups, or other flavorings, and you need a special ultra-wide straw to drink the liquid. And suck up these flavor bubbles. Molecular gastronomy also spawned a related field called molecular mixology, the mixology of which refers to mixing cocktails. This idea gained traction in the late 2000s. Mixological equipment can include the Rotavap, a well-known apparatus in organic chemistry laboratories. Which is a rotating vacuum distillation apparatus, and used here to extract aromas, reduce juices to syrups without heating, and making flavored alcoholic spirits. Perhaps you would use a vacuum sealer so that you can mix ingredients and preserve them under vacuum, and thus include peculiar flavors like leather and tobacco in a cocktail called the smoked old fashioned. Or perfumes in the champagne number、no. five, or maybe you want a revised version of Jello shots as mojito spheres. With xanthan gum, you can thicken a cocktail so that the ingredients stay in place rather than floating to the top or sinking to the bottom of the glass. You might ask, what about all these additives to the food? Are they safe? In brief, yes. Pretty much all are approved food ingredients. They are also added to the foods in such small amounts that it probably makes no difference anyway. As we learned from toxicologist Dr. Myra Weiner, a guest on one of the episodes a while back, the dose makes the poison. There are now detractors to the term molecular gastronomy, such as Heston Blumenthal, who now claims that the phrase doesn't apply to any kind of cooking, and it creates psychological barriers and feels elitist. He now claims merely to use new tools for traditional dishes, and some feel that the molecular gastronomy world is a fad that's over. But at least we brought food and chemistry together for a brief time in this episode. In our next episode, we go back to some hardcore chemistry again and examine what chemical things we can do with Buckminster Fullerene, that soccer ball-shaped molecule. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.